Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our opportunity here at Gospel of Grace to worship you and to learn your word. We do pray, Lord, that as we look into the book of Proverbs, you'd give us clarity as to how to understand the book and how to apply it to our lives so that we would live lives that are pleasing to you, bring you honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now, last time we were in the book of Proverbs last week, I began an introduction, and today is somewhat part two of that, but if you notice the title, The Wise Versus the Fool, one of the things that I want everyone to see regarding the book of Proverbs is if you can always have in your mind that Solomon and the writers of the Proverbs are dealing with two ways. There's the way of the wise that's on the path to salvation and the way of the fool that's on the way to perdition. And every action and thing that we do lines up with one of those two ways. And you're going to see that, I think, very profoundly today in some of the examples that we look at. But if you remember last week, we also had some homework. Remember those three questions that I had given you? And we never got to finish them, so I want to begin there. Remember we looked at the first question was, what were the main purposes, the four main purposes of the book of Proverbs? That was question number one. Now, did anyone else want to hit that or give an answer to that because remember we did talk about that in Proverbs 1, 1 through 4 and um, in fact let me just read that and then we can get to anybody who may have a comment on it. Proverbs 1, 1 through 4 it says the Proverbs of Solomon the son of David king of Israel now notice the purpose statements with the preposition to know wisdom and instruction to discern the sayings of understanding to receive instruction and wise behavior righteousness, justice, and equity to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. All right, now, does anybody want to take a stab at how you kind of condense the four, the four main reasons why Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs? I know we had someone. Yeah, Norm. And Carly, we'll get the um, microphone over there. Thanks, Carly, for being the runner there. We took someone young. <laughs> um, yep. Before we do the four, um, I know some think there's maybe five reasons. And the, you could and be right, yeah. Verse, verse six would be for understanding proverbs and parables and sayings and riddles and the wise. So Amen. Maybe we could expand it to five. Absolutely. I'm not against that. Yep, we're not locked into four. Absolutely. The only reason I didn't is I think it's kind of covered and it's somewhat redundant, but you're right. Um, you know, it, what's interesting is even here to know wisdom, we'll talk about wisdom in the next slide, but knowledge is always central to wisdom. And what's interesting in the postmodern age, Norm, wisdom and knowledge are often divorced. In fact, it's, they're not even talked about. But knowledge isn't something that can be really had according to the postmodern generation. Let me explain why that is. You and I, most people operate in what's called foundationalist epistemology. Epistemology is simply the study of knowledge. Foundationalists, we believe in the laws of logic. Even if you don't know them, you use them. For example, the law of identity, A is A. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Bible's the Bible, the computer's the computer. I'm simply labeling things. That's how we learn. Remember when you're a toddler, you're toddling around, and your dad says, this is a football, and this is a fork, and, and your mom and dad teach you things, and you know things by identity. We use that all the time. Second law of logic is the law of non-contradiction. If A, then not non-A at the same time in the same relationship. If the door then not the door at the same time in the same relationship. So why do you guys all go out the door when you leave and not the wall? Because you've learned using the law of non-contradiction to distinguish between categories. Um, let's take the law of excluded middle, either A or non-A. It's either the door or it's a non-door. Okay? The law of causality is sometimes regarded as the fourth law of logic because it stems from the other ones you can never have something that is an uncaused effect. If something is an effect, it's had a cause. That's why we know that there must be a creator who created all things. So the law of identity, the law of excluded middle, the law of non-contradiction, and the law of causality, that's the basis of foundationalism. 
Foundationalism means we have a foundation that we can stand on and know other things. The reason you can read and understand your Bible is because you can distinguish between Christ and Antichrist. You can distinguish between heaven and hell. Why? Because you have the law of non-contradiction. That's knowledge. All knowledge is predicated on those laws. By the way, some people will say, well, I don't believe in those and we can get around those. No, you can't because God created them. Here's an idea. Try to get rid of the law of non-contradiction. If you have a postmodern that tries to do that, they'll say, I don't believe in the law of non-contradiction and then say, oh yeah, but I do believe in the law of non-contradiction. Well then, wait a minute, the law of non-contradiction can't exist and not exist at the same time in the same relationship. Uh, Bob Dway, you knew uh, Norm Geisler pretty well. Well, I also, I wrote an article about that in a scholarly. Yeah. I actually wrote one when I was in seminary. And basically what he pointed out was, if the only way you can refute something is by using it. <laughs> exactly, that's what I wanted you to say. You're caught in a... <laughs> Self he calls it self-referentially incoherent. Right, right. Okay? So if you have to use something to refute it, you just prove that it's valid. <laughs> that's right, and that's so right. Somebody wrote an article trying to refute non-contradiction, and it's an absurdity. It is an absurdity. Why? Because as Bob just said, you have to use the law of non-contradiction to get rid of it. Isn't that absurd? Just think if you had to use a shovel to disprove that shovels existed. Norman Geisler, the quote that I was thinking of that, he, that I was famous oh, for. About the, the robber? Oh, yeah, yeah, tell them that one. I like that one. Well, we had, uh, before I even went to seminary, I was part of an apologetics group. Yeah. And uh, we had Norman Geisler come in and speak. And he uh, was talking about using logic and reason and evidence. And somebody said, well, I don't so we got a microphone. Oh, here. Thanks, Carly. Sorry to make you walk so far. Okay, so uh, we're going to use evidence. Well, then the postmodern says, so I don't believe in evidence. Yeah. So he talked about the, the, the robber. He said, let's say you have a gun under your pillow, and a, a, a mean robber comes through the, uh, crashes through your window at night, he's going to attack you. Yeah. And you point the gun at him, and the, the robber says, oh, I don't care because I don't believe in guns. Okay. Norm Geisler says, Pull the trigger, it'll still work. <laughs> right. He doesn't have to believe in guns for guns to work. That's right. And so his point is, the way God created humans on the earth... That's right. ...is that the only way for us to survive is using non-contradiction... Exactly. ...logic and so on. And, for example, we have to discern between food and non-food. That's right. Nutrition and poison. Amen. And that's the only way. We can't live by instinct. That's right. So Geisler said, just don't worry about what the postmoderns believe or don't believe. Keep using it because it's valid. It's valid. It'll still work. Amen. Well said. I love that story, Bob. So, yeah, Jen. Oh, okay. White Saturn's got lights on? Um, yeah, I just don't want you to drain your battery. So okay, as you were ahead. talking about those laws, I was thinking of the absolute lunacy of the left in thinking yeah. that a woman could have surgery and actually become a man, and a man could have surgery and actually become a woman. Yes. And they believe that that happens. And it, yeah. they will never be able to change their DNA of who That's right. they are. God created them that way. And then I, I was reading this um, article, and it said um, that the correct thing now is to not call it breastfeeding. It's chest feeding. Because oh, sure. They're offended. Thought, this is so ridiculous. And those yeah. people, seriously, they got something wrong up there. <laughs> Jen, no, you're right, and it's part of the postmodern age. They, they reject the law of excluded middle, either male or non-male, either female or non-female, but they want to get rid of those lines. So here's what I'm pointing out is that to know wisdom implies that you can have knowledge. The postmodern generation doesn't believe that you can truly know. You just have opinions, and that's why if you hear in the news they talk about a narrative, what they're really talking about is a world of their own making. They'll talk about the narrative in the news, a meta-narrative that they create that's independent of facts. Why can, they, why can they hold as news people these ideas that aren't dependent upon facts and history? 
Well, because they're postmodern, they don't believe you can know. So the modernist idea of having an epistemology built on foundationalism is rejected. And instead, it's a system called coherentism, where something is true if we all agree to it. If we all agree that something is true, then it becomes true. It's called a socially constructed reality. And so that's how things are deemed to be true. But that's not the book of Proverbs. You can know something. Think about 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may, what? Know that you have eternal life. Yes, knowledge is essential to having wisdom. And I'll talk more about that. Notice the idea of discerning the sayings of understanding. Discernment is something that all Christians are called to. Remember the Bereans in the book of Acts. They could discern that which was from God and that which wasn't. Why? Because they could know and they could understand things through God's written word. So yes, Proverbs wants to give us discernment. Notice the receiving of instruction. Wise people receive instruction. The fool doesn't. And today, I'm going to show you an example of that. There's a man named Nabal from the Old Testament. Does anybody remember him out of 1 Samuel 25? I see some of you do. Nabal's name means fool. He was a foolish man, and you know why he was so foolish? Because he wouldn't listen. We'll, we'll take a look at that. Notice the idea of giving prudence to the naive and to the youth knowledge. In the culture of the Bible, because it's, the culture was given by God, that is, I'm talking about the scriptures, being youthful didn't mean that you had more wisdom than those who were old. In 1960s America, that changed. Remember the saying, don't trust anyone over 30? That's not the biblical worldview. God reveals that typically the youth are more naive. Now, that doesn't mean always. Remember, we're talking about generalities. But without generalities, you can't have what? Wisdom. By the way, let me mention something about generalities. Without generalities, you don't have any wisdom. Without examples, you, you can't have generalities. So one powerful way to argue is give a generality and then give specific examples. So if you're ever arguing a point, whether it's political or theological, give a generality and then give the evidence. And maybe give three or four so that people know that you're serious, <laughs> that the evidence is there. Okay? So, dear ones, this is the, these are the four main purposes. I think Norm is hitting on one, two. That could be a fifth. I would wrap that into the first. But it's to know wisdom. It's to understand wisdom. It's to have moral insight and to move from maturity to immaturity. Now, I want to come to the second question. And that was, what seems to be the difference, if there is any, between knowledge and wisdom? Would anyone want to take a swing at that? What's the difference between knowledge Isn't, and wisdom? Isn't uh, wisdom the knowledge of God, and maybe knowledge is the knowledge of man? Wouldn't wisdom be the knowledge of God? That's very good. Uh, yeah, you know what? The, we'll, we'll talk more about it. But yeah, that's, you're, you're, so you're thinking, Rich, Wisdom is something that comes from God, and knowledge is something of man. Now, I would say God obviously has knowledge. He's omniscient. He knows all things. But, um, yeah, it's oftentimes we see in the scriptures, for example, Christ is often looked at as the wisdom and the power of God. We'll see that in 1 Corinthians. It's, in other words, it's the Christ incarnation, and what he does for us is the greatest expression of God's wisdom. So certainly wisdom and knowledge come from God, but I don't think we would want to divorce God from having both. Uh, does that make sense? In other words, God has both, and um, we can have both, I think, as well. So I do see a, a slight nuance between knowledge and wisdom. Does anyone else want to take a stab at it? Yeah, Mike. By the way, when we're done uh, today, we're all going to call each other wise grasshopper. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Kung fu. Yeah. Um. Knowledge. I think we can have knowledge. It, 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 it uh, dovetails with what Rich said, too. Um, wisdom is the wisdom of God. Uh, but we can have knowledge and not have wisdom. We all know yes. people that are very knowledgeable, but wisdom, knowledge is like the tool, that, and wis, wisdom, you, uh, you, you need wisdom to apply the knowledge. That's yeah. what I'm kind of driving yeah. at. Amen. Right. That's right. That's kind of the... Let me... Um, Anybody else? Yeah, Brian's got something up here. And then, oh, Norm's got something. <clears throat> then we'll come to Brian. Yeah, just adding to what Mike was saying, I think knowledge is facts, it's data, it's information. Now, wisdom is how do you apply it? You know how to properly use it. 
Yeah. And, and yeah, that, that fits worldly wisdom, worldly knowledge. You go to the doctor and he does a diagnosis and you hope, and he gets the information, but you hope he knows how to apply it and come up with a remedy. That's a great point. That's the, th those are the distinctions that I'm seeing too, absolutely. Absolutely, uh, we got some for Brian here. Grasshopper Brian. <laughs> Why is grasshopper? Norm hit on what I was going to say. Yeah. It's how we use the knowledge, and we can use it for good or evil. And That's a good right. example of that is with the increase in technology. Take computers, for example, and all these yeah. phones. And you, you can use it to spread the gospel, for example, or yeah. you can use it for communications between people that you don't see often. And yeah. But you can also use it for pornography, right. child uh, slavery, and so on and, and so forth, things like that. So it's how we use that knowledge. Amen. Well said. I think you're right. I think you guys are hitting on it. In fact, let me give you my definition that I've kind of come with from Proverbs. And this is the definition. And again, it's certainly me and it's amendable. But I think wisdom is knowledge used effectively and morally at the right time. It's what Mike and Norm are getting at. The idea, the, one of the examples I had is when I was a flight instructor years ago, I would have students that knew, they knew what to do. If you say, hey, you see the runway coming at you, pull back. Well, they knew that. But they didn't have the wisdom to do it at the right time. And so you couldn't really ever get angry with them because it wasn't that they were, weren't studying. They knew what to do. But they would just crash and kill themselves if you let them try to do it because they didn't do it at the right time, the right amount, etc. And so they had the knowledge in the head, but they couldn't bring it about using the wisdom of the hands, as it were. Now, there's a little bit of a difference there because that has to do with prowess, and some of that has to do with coordination, et cetera. But, there, but you all know, just as Mike and Norm were saying, that there's people who have wisdom, they have lots of data, but they don't know how to apply it. And that's really the distinction that I see between wisdom and knowledge in the scriptures. Notice I say it has to be used effectively. Let me pull up my pointer. I said effectively and morally. One of the things that we see in the scriptures is that knowledge can be used immorally. Remember in Corinthians, you had the Corinthians boasting that they had knowledge. They had knowledge that certain things like food sacrificed to idols, they could eat it. But their knowledge was causing weaker brothers and sisters to stumble. And so it caused them to perhaps deviate from the faith. So there you had knowledge, but it wasn't exercised morally and therefore it wasn't wisdom. Let me give you three aspects of this wisdom that I see, and we'll look at these. Wisdom is intellectual and informed by God's word. Again, wisdom is based on knowledge. Certainly wisdom is more than just knowledge, but it's not less than that. The same thing with saving faith. Saving faith always has knowledge associated with it, but it's more than it. Okay, so let me say it this way. Saving faith is more than mere knowledge, but it's not less than that right? The same thing goes with wisdom. You can't have wisdom without knowledge. And that's implied, I think, in Proverbs 1-2. Proverbs 1-2, again, let me just reiterate it. It said to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings and understanding. The term there, know, yeah, that, means to have knowledge, to understand the data. How can people have knowledge if they don't understand the scriptures? If you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the data, you can't have wisdom. You have to have knowledge. Yeah. This Aaron. is almost as if I timed this just perfectly because what I notice is in Proverbs 1, verse 7, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning yeah. of knowledge. Yes. Then, then in Proverbs uh, 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, Amen. but the fear of the Lord is the root of both of them. Amen. There you go. There you go. Very good, Eric. Now, now let's talk that through a little bit. The fear of the Lord, why would someone fear who Yahweh is? Well, first, they have to know something of who he is. Why should I fear Yahweh? Well, because he's the creator of all things. He's the one who's going to not only, not only did he create, but he's going to judge. And therefore, because I have knowledge of who he is, I fear who he is. We fear what we know. We don't fear what, well, you can fear what you don't know, I guess. But we fear him because we know that he's the one we ultimately answer to. Again, that's the Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear he who can destroy the body but he who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Absolutely. So fear, part of that too, is also this reverence. We revere our Father, not because we hate him, but because we love him and fear him. 
And so there's a reverence to that. So absolutely fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Absolutely. Let me come to the second part, and that is wisdom is common sense and at times used in practical skills. And we see that through the Bible. The term for wisdom is often used, for example, with those skilled craftsmen that God used to build the tabernacle. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus 28.3. Exodus 28.3. Exodus 28.3, the term for wisdom is actually used here. Notice Exodus 28.3. It says this, it says, You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom... Notice they're endowed with what? The spirit of wisdom. And they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister as priest to me. So notice their prowess. They can make things. But I want you to notice that they're called skillful persons. The term skillful, the term kakham, literally means they are wise at heart. So not only are they called wise at heart, the skillful person, but they're also called those who have wisdom later on in the same verse. All right. So this shows us that people who have vocations, who serve God, they can exercise their wisdom. And how do they do it? By doing that which is pleasing to the Lord, exercising their vocation to benefit fellow mankind. That's an exercise of wisdom that we see in the scriptures. Number three, wisdom involves self-control. That's a big one in the book of Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs 5.8. Proverbs 5.8. If we don't have self-control, we're lacking wisdom. And again, why? Because we have knowledge. We have knowledge of who God is. We fear him, as Eric just said. Because we fear God, we don't want to rebel against him. Therefore, we exercise self-control. Proverbs 5.8, it says, regarding the adulterous woman, it says, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. That's self-control. Why is that wise? Because of the fear of the Lord. We don't want to rebel against him. So to me, I, I look at three aspects of wisdom. One, it's, it's intellectual. You have to have knowledge. Second, it's used at the right time and in the right way. Whether it's your vocation, whether it's you understanding the scriptures, it's used at the right time and the right way. And number three, it involves self-control. Okay, so yes, knowledge and wisdom are intricately linked. But wisdom is knowledge applied effectively and morally at the right time. Anybody else on that? Yeah, Rich. It's good to understand the exact opposite of what you're saying. The exact opposite of what you're saying is, well, non-self-control, and it is um, the emergent church, you can't know. You, there's no foundational purpose here. You can't know A is not A, yeah. B is not B. But with that, in the Satanic Bible, the first thing that comes out, it says, it says, do whatever you want. Yeah. No self-control. So I think that what you're saying is exact opposite. It's God. It's foundational. It's truth. But the opposite is Satan is just working on the society tooth and nail day and night to drive in the exact opposite of what you're saying. That's right. No self-control. Do whatever you feel, whenever That's you right. feel. And A is not A. B is not B. It's whatever you want it to be. Well said, Rich. You know, think about in the garden, what's the, the two great lies? One, you won't die. And number two, you'll be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. In other words, you can do what you want. You're going to be your own lawgiver. And so self-restraint goes out the window because you can determine for yourself what's good and bad. So absolutely. So the postmodern age is getting rid of wisdom. I think I mentioned last week, you have a lot of postmodern parents who are telling their children that they really have nothing to offer them. Um, do you guys remember there was a man named uh, Johnny... I, I, all I remember is his Johnny Lynn Walker, I think. I remember his, his nickname. Some people called him Rat Boy, but he was the one who joined the Taliban. And he was a traitor to his country. Well, if you looked at the background with his parents, his parents literally told him, we don't know anything about religion. Just go out and find what you think is true and live on it. Well, he became a Muslim terrorist. Why? Because his left-wing postmodern parents didn't have anything to offer him. Now, I, I'm not saying we... Can't, we can't always control what our children do. And so you can't always blame them. But if you look at the background, he was ripe for that sort of thing. Why? Because his, his parents said, you just go find in the world for yourself what's true. We don't have anything to offer you. 
We have no, no suggestions because we're postmodern. One of the things you're going to see in the book of Proverbs is the fool doesn't listen to their parents. And implied in that is the parents are giving godly wisdom. So you have fools who are begetting children who become fools, and you have generations of it. Detached from knowledge, detached from self-control, detached from being able to use knowledge effectively and morally at the right time. That's what we're seeing in spades. Now, let me move on here. I want to talk about the goal of wisdom. Um, I think Eric kind of hit on it already, but what seems to be the ultimate goal for wisdom that Solomon wants people to come to? Does anybody have anything on that that they want to share? I think Eric has hit it already in the idea of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, what I want to do is build the case that that's really synonymous with faith. Not that faith and fear of the Lord are identical, but if you have faith, you end up having fear of the Lord. It's like having faith, you end up repenting. Why? Because you've repented from idolatry, you've turned to it, and you've turned to faith in Christ. So you can't have true saving faith without repentance. Right? And the idea also is that if you truly have saving faith because you've repented, you also are going to fear the Lord. Why? Because you know who he is and you have the wisdom to say, I, don't, I want to please him. I don't want to offend the Holy One of Israel. But let's look at the goal of wisdom from Proverbs 1, 5 through 7. Let's look at verse 5. I'll take this part by part. Verse 5, it says, A wise man will hear and increase in learning and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Okay, stop there. Okay, grasshoppers. Does anybody see any type of parallelism there? Any type of parallelism that we studied last time? I'll tell you what I think it is. I could be either synthetic or synonymous, but I think it's synonymous. Let me show you why. Isn't the wise man really synonymous with a man of understanding? And won't the idea of hearing increase in learning really the same as acquiring wise counsel? Yes. Yeah, I think they are. So why is that important? Because if, if I would ever do this to you during Proverbs, I start telling you the man of understanding is a lot different than the wise man, I'm probably leading you astray somewhat because it's synonymous. Does, does that make sense? Now, here the idea then is to think of the opposite. The opposite would be that fools won't hear and they will therefore what? They won't increase in knowledge. They won't listen. And so one of the things that Proverbs teaches us is to be those who listen to the wise. Those who learn from the scriptures what's required of us. Why? Because that's how we gain an understanding. Notice verse 6. It says, to understand a proverb and figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. Now what's interesting here is the proverb, the term there, proverb, mashal, is often a, it's like a wise saying that has to do with revealing sometimes the inner truth of something. So remember in Isaiah 14, you have the mashal, the proverb of the king of Babylon. And what the proverb is ultimately about is it's revealing the inner truth that who's inciting the king of Babylon is Satan. And so sometimes a proverb can refer to something revealing the inner truth, but here it's just referring to the idea of having wisdom, having knowledge that's rightly applied morally and at the right time. Uh, notice the term figure here. The term figure comes from a term, it's interesting, molitza. Molitza, and that means something difficult to understand, but it can be. Why? Because God's revealed it. Bob has, for 40 years, told people, to rely upon what God has revealed, not what he has not revealed. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the things that the Lord has revealed belong to us and our children forever, but what he has not revealed belongs to the Lord alone. So the only way that we can know the Proverbs, the figures, the wise riddles, the only way we can know those things is they've been revealed to us. If God didn't reveal the knowledge through the scriptures, we'd be left in the dark. Now, notice here we come to verse 7. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Yes, the fear of the Lord, being concerned by what he thinks, that's the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of knowledge. Now, that implies that you have saving faith. Because those who have saving faith fear the Lord, and those who do not, do not fear the Lord. Now, let me build a case for that, that in fact, Solomon, the ultimate goal of wisdom is to bring you to having faith and fear of the Lord. Turn your Bibles 
to Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. I'm going to show you that having saving faith is very important to Solomon. It's something that we should see in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Notice Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Notice it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Notice the idea of trust there. The Hebrew term batak means to rely upon, trust upon him. That's synonymous with saving faith. And so here, the book of Proverbs wants us to trust upon the Lord. The whole point of having fear of the Lord is predicated on you trusting him, having faith in him. Why? Because otherwise you won't care what the Lord thinks. Now, think about a passage if you want to understand what it means to trust the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. Think of Isaiah 28.16. If you're a note-taker, jot that down. Remember, that's where Yahweh says that he has planted a... I'm using the wrong term. He had put in Israel a costly stone... And those who would trust upon him would not be disappointed. Uh, Remember, Paul cites that in Romans 9.33. Is everyone tracking with me? So if you trust upon the stone, which is what? It's the Messiah. You're never going to be disappointed. Why? Because the stone that's going to be laid in Zion, he's going to save you. He's going to bring you to a glorious kingdom. And so that's the idea that you see behind trust, a batak, that you can trust the Holy One of Israel. You can trust Him for your atonement. You can trust Him providentially to care for you in this life. You can trust Him for all your needs. You can trust Him for salvation. You can trust Him to protect you all the way to glory. So that's part and parcel to having wisdom is trusting in the Lord. So what I want you to see is that fear of the Lord comes from those who trust in him, just like obedience does. So I want to have in your mind the idea of faith and flowing from that fear of the Lord and obedience. That's the goal. So in in Solomon's Proverbs, he just wants you to focus on the fear of the Lord and the wisdom that flows from it, the obedience. That's the idea, but implied is that you have saving faith. Yes, Eric. I've really been learning a lot here. I just want to show off a little. Sure. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just, but uh, in the verse 7, you know, we've got, I think that's what you would call, I'm, I'm working with what you gave us last week, antithetical. Yes. Okay? The, yes. the fear of the Lord, see, it's contrasting the fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of knowledge, and fools dis, despise wisdom, you know. So a biblical definition of a fool would be someone who does not fear the Lord. Amen. Oh, I'm getting it. Okay. Yeah, it's very good. Exactly. Very, very well said. You're right. And you get free coffee, Eric, because that is antithetical parallelism. Even though there's not a but, oftentimes antithetical parallelism will have a preposition, a but, in there. But it's implied, isn't it? It's implied, yeah. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Absolutely. So uh, the implication is the wise grasshopper Right? The true believer, the one who fears the Lord, we don't despise wisdom and instruction. Right? We'll, we'll take instruction and receive it. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Barb. Uh, I just wanted to mention you do, uh, referred us to Isaiah 28:16 yeah. about trusting in the Lord and we wouldn't be, was it disappointed? Yes. That you, the version that um, I'm looking on my phone, the version I've got here uh, said, the one who relies on the stone will never be stricken with panic. Wow. So I yes. thought, you know, based on scary times that well we feel said. are in possibly around us, that we can trust Jesus. Absolutely. Yeah. Barb, and that's a better rendering, actually, of the Hebrew. Um, Paul that borrows from the Septuagint in Romans 9.33, and so the, term, the better rendering from the Septuagint is disappointed, and so that's why Paul cites from that in Romans 9.33. But they're really not saying anything different. Let's put it this way. If you are going to perish, you're going to be disappointed. And if you're going to perish, you ought to panic, (laughs) right? Um, I always told, going back to flight instructing days, my students would ask me, "When, when will I know that we're in trouble? And I said, I'll tell you. 
You can panic when I tell you it's the time when we're about to crash, right? There, there are certain times where it's okay to panic, that is, if you're going to perish. But if you trust in the Lord, you never will perish. And so that's the idea, is that you won't be disappointed. You're not going to... Literally, in the Hebrew, I think it's the idea is that you won't be moved. Um, so they're, they're, they're rendering it different ways. But the idea would be panic, the idea that you don't have to flee in fear because you're standing on the stone that was laid in Zion. And so, by the way, in, in Isaiah, just a real quick aside... The Lord plants the Davidic promises in Judah. What was under attack from Assyria and Babylon? They're attacking Judah, which is what? The headquarters of the promises given to David. And so what's interesting is that Isaiah 28, 16 is pregnant with Messiah. Yes, Messiah isn't even on the scene yet, but if you lose David and all of the kings in Judah and Israel, you lose the Messianic promises. But the idea is if you'll trust in that stone, which ultimately will be the Messiah, you're never going to be disappointed. So yeah, that has to do with the fear of the Lord. Why should I fear if I have the Lord? So you see then that trust and trusting in the Lord shows where our fear should be. It's in what he thinks, not anything that man can do. Um, There was times, I remember I got hailed on one time as a pilot, and I, I thought to myself immediately... Because if you ever, <laughs> do you ever, have you ever been hailed on in a car and you, you hear what that's like? Try it at 240 knots. That's about 275 miles an hour. It really sounds bad. And I'm sure the hail was real small, otherwise the airplane would have been chewed up. But immediately when I had, that was over Lake Superior, I thought, I'm sure glad I belong to the Lord. I, that's the immediate thing that I thought of. There was another time that I um, was in turbulence so bad that the transducer in the bottom of the oil reservoir wasn't sensing oil because the oil was so lifted up because of negative Gs. The transducer sensing you have no oil, so your oil pressure lights are going on because the turbulence is so bad. And the same thought. And the reason why is because ultimately we have everlasting life. The moment you breathe your last here, you're present with the Lord. So absolutely, Barb, that's a great reading. You're not going to be, um, how was it, moved? Stricken with panic. There you go. Yeah, that's very good. Okay, now let me give you another passage that Solomon wrote, but this time it's in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The reason I want you is I want you to see the relationship between Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and the wisdom literature that Solomon is really teaching some of the same things. That the idea of having saving faith, obedience, fear of the Lord, all of those things are tied together. Ecclesiastes 12.13. This is the conclusion to the book of Ecclesiastes. And you're going to see what he wants people to come to is very similar to what we see in Proverbs. Again, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But look what he says in Ecclesiastes 12.13. He says, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. Now, fearing the Lord, again, implies what? It implies that you have faith. You don't fear what you don't trust. The reason we fear the Lord is because we know who he is. But notice then you could really say synonymously with that is to have faith and then what? Obey his commandments. Why? Because faith and obedience go hand in hand. If you really believe, you really act on what you believe. The old uh, saying, remember there was a woman going over the tight, over the Niagara Falls on a tightrope? And, um, oh no, I'm sorry, it was a man. I forget his name. But he would ask people in the crowd if anyone believed that he could do it. And they'd all clap and say, yes, we believe you can go over Niagara Falls in the tightrope. And then remember, he had a wheelbarrow. He went over Niagara Falls with a wheelbarrow. And he said, how many believe that I can go over Niagara Falls in this tightrope with a wheelbarrow? And they all said, yes, we believe you can do it. And then he asked the question, who wants to get in? And then all of a sudden, everyone had to go home and check their pot roast, right? (laughs) All right? But the idea is if we really have faith we get in the wheelbarrow. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying. That's what Proverbs is saying, is we're going to act differently. We're going to have wisdom. Why? Because we really fear the Lord. We really trust in him. That's the whole idea. Now, I want to talk about the way of the wise and the way of the fool. I want to talk about that because throughout our study in Proverbs, I want you to see that very clearly. Oh, the way of the wise is being talked about, or the way of the fool. Keep that in your mind. It's a great grid. It's very simple, but it's one or the other. Now, let me give you some examples. Proverbs 1.7. Again, we just looked at that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And I was going to talk about how this is antithetical parallelism, but Eric got it already. 
So yes, the antithetically, the fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's who the fool is. The fool doesn't want to know what your Bible says. They don't want to know what godly men throughout the generations have said. And what I mean by that, by godly men, I mean Moses and the prophets. I'm talking about the tradition of Scripture, Scripture itself. They don't want to know those things. Now, let me show you another example of this. Proverbs 12, 15, it says, The way of the fool, of a fool, is right in his own eyes. Antithetical parallelism. But a wise man is he who listens to counsel. So the fool is one who won't listen, right? The term, by the way, for fool there, elil, is someone who is a moron. They're a, they're a moron all wrapped up in an idiot. Why? Because they won't ever listen to instruction. They won't ever listen to what people have to say. And so therefore they are dangerous. They go their own way. Uh, notice here the term wise man, the term kakam, means they're knowledgeable, discerning, and they're in self-control. Now, one thing I want to point out, and this is what I want you to keep in your minds, notice in the box the term the way. That's something you're going to see all the time. The term in Hebrew, derek, just like Derek, um, the, the people have that name, Derek. That is the term for way or road. So the book of Proverbs depicts the way of salvation, the way of the wise, and the way of damnation, the way of the fool. And so the idea is don't follow the way of the fool unto destruction. Follow the way of the wise. So once you see those two different ways, it's going to help you interpret Proverbs because in any given section... Solomon or whoever's writing, Lemuel or Agur, they're going to be laying out, you're either following this path or you're that path. So it makes it really simple, right? Now, let me talk about a concrete example, a case study of a fool. We just saw the way of the fool is one who doesn't listen to other people and won't learn wisdom from the scriptures. A great case study of that was Nabal. Yeah. Oh, you did. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Oh, we ran out. I'm sorry. Yeah, we'll still learn. Yeah, sorry about that. I don't know. I um. Yeah, well, we'll we'll do this anyway. In fact, Brian, you have. We need the mic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, don't panic. <laughs> Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. <laughs> That's right. Um, Carly, we need to get the microphone up to Brian because you've got to read uh, for us if you wouldn't mind. Everyone turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Samuel 25. I want to do a case study of Nabal who exer- exercises a lack of wisdom by rejecting David. Hey, uh, Eric, before I read yeah. it, yes. uh, could you... Uh, I, I was thinking of what Bob's been teaching us about the false uh, uh, covenant with God in America. Yes. Could that be an example of uh, either not having the knowledge or the wisdom? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, because think about it. It's not really hard in Scripture when you have knowledge that yeah. comes, for example, from Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10. Right. Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, there's the data. Yeah. That's the knowledge. And right. what does the knowledge tell us if we have it? That there was one nation that belongs to Yahweh, which is Israel, and all the other nations are pagan. Right. So... Therefore, you have people who don't have that knowledge, yeah. and therefore they foolishly say what? Well, America can have a covenant. Yes. And so that shows you just how important knowledge is, having the data. If you don't have the data, you can't be wise. Right. The point is you can have the data and still not be wise. So the point is putting it together. Yeah. That's right. Very okay. good, very good example. So he's going to read uh, 1 Samuel 25. The first four verses. Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him, and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Moron whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and uh, he was a uh, Calebite. Uh, the David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Yeah, very good. So that's what, so. Notice the setting here. It's about right around Carmel. That's where you had the showdown with the false prophets of Baal with Elijah, right? In First Kings nineteen. 
So think of this. You have this man. His name is Nabal, and he owns the shearing operation. His name in Hebrew, Naval, means fool. <laughs> That's his name. Now, again, I don't know if that was actually his name or that becomes kind of his stage name because that's how he became known, but that's his name for now on. All we know him is Nabal the fool. Well, why? Because he was a harsh man, and as you're going to see, he won't listen. But the idea is he has this shearing operation. He's very wealthy. Well, David is on the run at this time, and David and his men are protecting Nabal and his crops and his shearing operation, his, his, I should say his sheep. And you know what? David is going to go to Nabal and ask just for some sustenance because they've been protecting his shearing operation. And this man foolishly turns down the anointed one of Israel. So listen to what happens. 1 Samuel 25.5, it says, So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. Now, does everyone see the significance of that phrase in blue, greet him in my name? Remember in the Old Testament, there's a concept called the shaluak. A shaluak is one who is sent, who has the authority of the one who sends them. In this case, you have the king of Israel sending men in his name. Just like the apostle. The apostle is sent in Christ's name. You reject the apostle, you're rejecting Christ. So whatever happens to these men... If they're treated well, it's as if David himself is being treated well. But if they're mistreated, it's identical to mistreating David. That's the idea. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, a little bit ahead. 1 Samuel 25, 9 through 11. The, the, the idea is David goes to Nabal, or excuse me, his men, and they went and spoke to him, and he rejects them. Nabal rejected them. Notice what it says. It says, when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servant and said, who is David? Does everyone see that? Stop there. Who is David? There was a scholar who said this, and I think it's a very astute point. That is a formal rejection to this informal covenant that David was trying to enter in with Nabal. In other words, in the culture of the day, if you say, who is David, it means get lost. I want nothing to do with you. Who is David? Well, David was of some renown. Remember, uh, not long before this, he killed a, a fairly good-sized fella named Goliath. There's a lot of people who knew who he was, but Nabal didn't care. The big rub is that this is the anointed one over Israel, or he will be. So, Right away, you see, this man doesn't want to enter into a covenant with David, even though David had been protecting his shearing operation. It says, and who, he, could, he continues, Nabal, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Notice how he is trying to explain his actions away. He says, shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears? and give it to men whose origin I do not know. This man just didn't want to share anything that he had, but he dresses it up with ignorance. So he wouldn't listen. Now, we know that he wouldn't listen because notice what it says in 1 Samuel 25, 17. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do. For evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. By the way, let me stop here. I forgot to tell you who this is. These are the men who are part of Nabal's camp, and they're telling Abigail what's going to happen. They're saying, look, your master Nabal, your husband, has turned down David, and he's going to be wiped out. So this is where we are in verse 17. These are men telling Abigail this. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Notice the term, the worthless man. The worthless man is synonymous with what? The fool. It's synonymous with the fool. Why? Because he won't listen. He won't trust upon the anointed one. He does everything that a fool does in Scripture. He rejects the king. He doesn't listen to advice. He goes his own way. He's wise in his own eyes. Here a man has been protecting him, and he won't share any sustenance. 
Nabal lives up to his name, he's the fool. And the big issue here that you see, why is he a fool? Because no one can speak to him. No one can tell him what the truth is. Dear when so many times you and I are out witnessing and preaching to others, and they won't listen. The scriptures depict that as foolishness. When you have the path of salvation and you have the path of wisdom, the greatest foolish act that anyone could exercise is not listening to you. They don't listen. Now, that doesn't mean that we give up on them. We do pray. We pray that the Lord would regenerate. Only the Lord can save. But the way of the fool is the way of those who don't listen. Yeah, Norm. I just thought of a good example of having knowledge but totally not using it and becoming a fool. It's Romans 1, 18 through 23, where it talks about mankind could see evidence of God just looking around, but they rejected it. Amen. And they were given over. Amen. We had the data. You're right. Um, So in Romans 1, we have natural revelation, which reveals something true of God. It reveals his eternal power and his divine nature, Paul says in Romans 1.20, so that all are without excuse. But instead of responding to that and coming to faith in the true God, they become idolaters. So what's interesting is natural revelation, what, what can be known about God through creation, it, all it does for humanity is condemn us because we, in our sinful nature, we become fools. In fact, it actually says that they became fools and changed the incorruptible for corruptible animals, etc. They worship and serve the creation rather than the creator's forever praise. So absolutely, it's a great example, Norm. I'm sorry, uh, Dan. I don't know if anybody saw this. I just saw it yesterday, uh, kind of a modern application of this. Yeah. Uh, Jerry, I think his name is Jerry Nadler, House oh. of Representatives. Yeah. There was a discussion. Uh, it was a House of Representative from Florida, I believe, that was actually quoting scripture about this transgender issue, about male and female and things like that. And yeah. Uh, Nadler kind of interrupted him and said, we don't listen to, you know, to basically to the scriptures. Is, I don't know the exact words that he said, but it was like, this was a worthless man saying wow. no to what God's word said in, in regards to this issue. So I just thought that was a wow. modern day application of this right here. Dan, a great example. Um, I remember Nadler too. He, um, after 270 nights of looting, rioting, and pillaging by Antifa, someone asked him about Antifa and he said, well, that doesn't really exist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. It, it, it is shocking. It is. But you're right. That's a great example. He won't listen. He won't listen to the scriptures. That's a great example. Very good. Thanks, you guys. Very good. Um, let me give you another example of the foolish youth. I, wanna, I wanted you to see that the fool won't listen, but oftentimes in our culture, the youth are elevated as the wisest. Do you remember there was a child, I forget, about 11 years old a few years ago that gave a lecture at the UN and basically browbeating all adults for global warming? And they all applauded as this is the wisest person they've ever heard. What's interesting is we don't see that in the scriptures. The scriptures don't depict the youth as wise. Okay, now that doesn't mean, again, it's generalities. You can have a wise youth, but it's the exception to the rule, not the rule. Okay, so let me just show you some examples of this. Proverbs 1.4. What's one of the results or goals of Proverbs? Well, it's to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. Why? Because they need it. Now, the old saying, remember, is that with age comes wisdom, although at times wisdom comes alone. Or excuse me, age comes alone, right? Age sometimes comes alone without wisdom. So you know people are older or fools. But generally in the scriptures, the young are the foolish ones. Now, this plays out as we're going to see when we get to uh, Proverbs 22, and I'll show you that in just a moment. Uh, Notice here in Isaiah 3, 4 through 5, part of the wrath that came upon Israel is that they were handed over to youthful leaders. Why? Their elders were gotten rid of. Why? Because God was angry with their idolatry. Notice what it says, Isaiah 3, 4 through 5. The Lord says, And I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them, and the people will be oppressed, each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder, 
and the inferior against the honorable. Notice we have synonymous parallelism here. The youth storming against the elder is identical to the inferior against the honorable. Does everyone see that? So think about it. The UN, with the lack of wisdom, they take the inferior over the honorable. They take the youth over the elder, and they think that that's wisdom. Do you see how foolish that is when you look at the scriptures? Let me go to the next slide. I'm going to show you from, yeah, Eric. Uh, is there a verse in there that says anything about, I will make demented old men rulers over them? I'm just, this is kind of a joke. Oh, okay. okay. Just, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know if read. anyone gets it. It could somewhere. But I, I think it's funny anyway. Okay. Yeah. Just, I, just asking. No, no, I don't know. I'd have to keep reading. What I remember in that section when I, when I taught through it is that it was really showing that the youth are those who, when they come to power, it's a sign of your culture isn't doing well. It's the, the Lord is handing you over to the foolishness of the youth. And, and, uh, uh, North Korea. North Korea. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that, that guy in charge of North Korea? Like, yeah, he's a kid. Oh, moron. Yeah, right. Yeah, Bob had mentioned the uh, dictator. I can't remember his name. Shung Jung. Um, no, Il, Il Jung. Il Jung. I'm sorry, I'm trying to get Il Jung. That's what I'm trying to say. The North Korean dictator, that's what I'm trying to say. He's a young man, and he was foolish, a foolish communist dictator as well. Now, let me show you something from Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22, 6, it says this. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, what's interesting is notice we say, well, hey, if we train up a child in the way he should go, there's a promise here. Even when he gets old, he will not depart from it. This has often been misapplied by people who say that this is a promise that God is giving, that if you find the natural bent, what your son or daughter is good at, and you train them up in that way, they're never going to leave it when they get older. They're going to keep going that way. If, if you train them up in the way that they should go, their natural inclinations, they're going to be well-trained in, in their vocation, and they won't depart from it. The difficulty with that, though, is once you understand that in Proverbs, there's two ways, the way of the fool and the way of the wise. The way of the fool is the way of the child. And so here, literally, the Hebrew isn't just in the way he should go. Literally, it's that way is a third-person pronominal suffix. So that means at the end of the word, there's a suffix on it that says it's literally his way. So the way I would render it is this. This is my personal translation. Train up a child in his way. That's literally what it says in the Hebrew. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. What this actually is is a warning wow. that the way of the, the child is the way of the fool. Why? Because we all have sinful hearts. And the idea is that unless the scriptures break through, unless God regenerates them, unless God changes them, and the scriptures are to be brought to bear so that they will change, they're going to keep going the way of the fool. Know this, this little child that stands up at the UN and browbeats all of humanity into being guilty about global warming for heating your home and driving your car, and the whole world, they all clap. That's foolishness. Amen. That's allowing a child to go her way the way of the fool, the way of destruction. That's the way of the child. It's his way. Now, to prove that I'm on the right interpretation here, turn your Bibles ahead to Proverbs 22.15. I just want you to see that this is true. And I'll come to you. Uh, we got to get a microphone up to Tom. Is the his God or is the his child? Oh, I'm sorry. You know what? I shouldn't have put his and <laughs> shows you the problem with personal translations. It should be small h, his way. What happens sometimes you get so... Every time you type his, it's often referring to God and it just goes in your mind. But no, this should be, a, this is a child. Yeah, I'm sorry. It should be a small H. Yep, his way. Good catch, Tom. Thank you. So small H there. Train up a child in his way, the way of the child. And even when he gets old, he will not depart from it. Now turn your Bibles to Proverbs 22:15, and we'll close here. Notice what it says of the child. It says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. So what is bound up? What is true? What is to the core of the child? It's foolishness. It's the way of the fool, the way of those who are perishing. And so what that shows us again is that we have to break them out of that. What does that? What takes the foolishness out of the child? It's the scriptures. 
the same thing that takes the foolishness out of us. So again, don't misunderstand Proverbs 22.6 as to imply that if we find the natural inclination of a child and we just train them, if they're going to be an electrician and we help them be an electrician, they're just going to be an electrician all their life. That's not what this passage is saying. What this passage is saying is lest you break them out of their foolishness through the scriptures, they're going to keep going down the path to destruction. Brothers and sisters, that's really true for all of us. Unless the scriptures had an impact on us and took us away from our foolishness, we'd go down that same path. In the book of Proverbs, there's two ways, the way of the wise and the way of the fool. It's the way of the scriptures that bring us down the way of the wise to salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you've made your scriptures clear that we can know the things that are pleasing to you. I do pray in the weeks to come that we would have wisdom and knowledge, that you'd help us to understand Proverbs well and apply them to our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See, I got a couple of housekeeping items. One is homework for next time. Let me come to that. I'm just going to put that up there. If you would, Proverbs 1, 8 through 19, I hope to get to that next time. And these are the four things that I wanted to have people answer. That is, what is the main idea of that pericope? Yes, I did not just misspell periscope. It's pericope. That's a section of scripture. So Proverbs 1, 8 through 19. Number two, what is the source of godly wisdom in this section? So what's the source of it? Number three, what is the source of ungodly counsel that must be avoided? And then number four, I want to kind of do this every time. Do you have any real-life examples. I'd love for all of you to share examples. By the way, I loved what you all shared today, so keep doing that.